open with me to the epistle to the Galatians. It's been a little while since we've been here. Um, you know, when you only preach once a month, <laughs> it takes you a little while to get back to um, back to things. We had Advent and preached a few sermons on that. And, um, so we're finally going to get back into Galatians, and I'm excited. Um, actually, I've had this this sermon ready since uh, since I come down with COVID. I was supposed to preach it, and then I ended up with COVID, and of course I had to put that on the back burner. Then it was Advent, so I've been trying to get back to Galatians for the last few months, but it's kind of hard. Um, but we're back here today, so praise God. Um, Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We're starting chapter 2. We've finished chapter 1. And so I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 2. This is the word of God. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicate it unto them that that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because the false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So we've, we started out in chapter 1 of Galatians, and as Paul goes through chapter 1, we see the, uh, the theme of this book revealed in the first chapter. The epistle to the Galatians is very much a thoroughly evangelical epistle. What do I mean by that? An evangelical epistle, well, the evangel or the gospel is the central theme and focus of the epistle to the Galatians. It's the central theme and focus of Paul as he writes to this church that is faced with the heresy of the Judaizers coming into it, trying to destroy the church of Christ from the inside out. The key theme of the book is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the centrality of the gospel. You'll notice that word evangelical, and you'll think of uh, evangelical Christianity in America. That's what uh, conservative Christians are calling evangelicals. We are the people of the gospel. Our, the, at the center and the heart of our religion is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do not have any hope. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? That if Christ has not been raised, 
Our faith is in vain. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die if Christ has not been raised. This is the centrality of our faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this epistle is an apologetic for the gospel, a defense of the gospel. This is what Paul is offering to the Galatians in this epistle, that he might defend the gospel against these heresies that are coming in to destroy it, to pervert it, and to add things to the gospel of Christ. It's protecting the pure gospel, the one that he delivered to them, which he summarizes in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. If you guys don't ever remember any other passage of scripture, memorize that one. That is the gospel. How Christ died according to the scriptures and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul is contending for in this epistle. Justification by faith alone is another major theme of the epistle to Galatians. And we'll see as we unfold this that the Judaizer, the Judaizing heresy was undermining the pure gospel that promised salvation by grace alone to those who were in Christ Jesus. So it is Paul's intent to protect the pure gospel from false teaching and false ideologies. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. This 14 years that it speaks about here, commentators are pretty much agreed that this is 14 years after his conversion, not 14 years after his first trip to Jerusalem. Remember, he went up the first time to Jerusalem. We read about that in uh, chapter 1. When he went up to the Jerusalem apostles that were apostles before him and then he returned and went into Damascus and he preached for three years that puts the time between this first journey and the second journey into Jerusalem about 11 years from the first time he went to Jerusalem to the second time this 14 years is recounting from his conversion on the road to Damascus when Jesus came to him and he was blinded and Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why are you persecuting my church? And so this is 14 years after that event in Paul's life. And so the details of this trip seem to indicate that this point in time in which he went up into Jerusalem was the uh, the around the time of the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Do you remember the um, are you guys familiar with the 
Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, there was a dispute between the churches, among the churches, about what, what were, um, how were the Gentile Christians to be treated? How were they to live? Should they be bound to circumcision and this other Jewish law or, or not? That was the question at the Council of Jerusalem. And as soon as I get to Acts, I'll read this. Acts chapter 15. They had this dispute here over circumcision, which is exactly what the Judaizers are preaching, right? They're saying, okay, you guys got faith in Jesus, that's good, but now you have to submit to circumcision or you're not really in the fold. You're not really a Christian unless you submit to circumcision. Well, this had already been addressed by the Council of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought up on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenix and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto the, the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders. They declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. So this is the point in time which Paul is talking about. He is up there to confer he is up there to confer with these other apostles about this matter. Do Christians have to submit to Jewish circumcision and the law of Moses in order to be saved? That is what this, these people were teaching when it says here in Acts 15, verse, well, verse 1, and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. This is the Judaizers. These are the people that Paul is writing this apologetic against in Galatians. Because these people have come into this region of Galatia and have said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And that grates against Paul's key message of justification by faith alone. It grates against the gospel message. When you say, by, gr by grace are you saved through faith, 
that not of yourself. Ephesians 2, verse 8, right? And then you say, except you be circumcised, you cannot be saved. Those are mutually exclusive statements. Those are contradictory. As far from the east as from the west. It's either we are saved by grace through faith, or we are saved by grace through faith plus circumcision, law of Moses, all this other stuff. And the law of Moses was, you know, everybody thinks, oh, the Ten Commandments. No, that was the, those are moral law. That's God's law, right? And we'll get into that here in a little bit. But there were, what, 613 commandments in the law of Moses that the people of Israel were to keep. And a lot of them were ceremonial and had to do with the temple that um, with Old Covenant worship, Old Testament worship. And now here come the Judaizers and they're saying, okay, well, let's add faith in Christ to that. And then you have the gospel. Let's add faith in Christ to Old Covenant, circumcision, law of Moses, works, all of that. And then you have the gospel. Paul hears this, and he's like, I thought we already settled this thing up here at the Council of Jerusalem. And so they go on to say here in Acts chapter 15, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by circumcision and the law of Moses. What does it say? No. Purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? When we contrast the law and faith, we are not saying that the law was bad. The law of God was not bad. And that's a common misconception in the modern church that law, bad, uh, grace, good. Well, the, the antinomy is not between law and grace. As you read the Old Testament and you read through Exodus and Deuteronomy and all these Old Testament books, you can see time after time the grace of God in the law. There was grace there. If there, was, if there wasn't, how many times would the people of God been wiped out? How many times would he just said, okay, well, you break the law and wipe them out? There, was, there were sacrifices for that. There was atonement under the old covenant. And that was gracious because God, didn't have, God was under no obligation to accept that sacrifice. Anytime God makes a covenant with man, it is gracious. He condescends to man and he says, I will provide this. 
just like when Abraham was at the altar with Isaac and he had the knife raised, getting ready to plunge it into his son. And he looked over and he saw the ram caught in the thicket. And he said, there, what? Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. God will provide a sacrifice. Foreshadowing Christ, right? So anytime God makes a covenant with man, by necessity, it is gracious. Because God is under no obligation to make that covenant with us. But he has. And so now he says, Now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which were neither our fathers, with neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. The problem with the law was not that it was bad. It was that people were sinful and could not and would not obey. They resisted to obey. They failed to obey because of sin that inherited in them. That was the problem with the law. So neither we nor our fathers were able to bear up under the law. So they asked these Judaizers, why are you, why are you tempting God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples? Putting this yoke of the law that nobody ever before had kept and now they're saying okay well now Jesus now let's keep the law and that's how you're justified well how much of an advantage do we think we have over the old covenant saints over Moses and over Abraham and Jacob and all of these old testament saints that the bible talks about there were some high points to be sure Abraham pleased God when he took Isaac and put him up on the altar. God was pleased with that. But also, Abraham lied. Abraham lied. Uh, we've been going through Genesis in our Sunday and Wednesday night services. and Abraham did a lot of lying. He did a lot of things that he shouldn't have done. So I think it's clear to see that we can go through the Old Testament and none of these men could bear up under the law. But now these Pharisees, these Judaizers are coming in and saying, oh, but with now that we're in this new covenant, let's just add this to that and then we'll be able to do it. We can add circumcision to faith in Christ and then you'll be justified. And Paul emphatically says, no. No, no, it, that's not how it works. That's not how it's going to work. But we believe that through grace, of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought by the Gentiles among the Gentiles by them. And after that they held their peace. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon hath, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this 
agree the words of the prophets as it is written after this I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will build up again the ruins thereof and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek the Lord and all Gentiles upon whom my name is called saith the Lord who doeth all these things known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world Wherefore, my sentence that we should trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall tell you the same things by mouth. So, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered unto idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye do well. So, this is the letter that they had written to these churches. Now, Antioch was in this region of Galatia. So they have already heard. These are the things that they said. Abstain from meat offered to idol, from things strangled, from fornication, and from blood. No mention of circumcision. No mention of the law of Moses. Just these things, right? And so they should have known better. This church in Galatia should have known better. They had already received this letter. They had already heard that these things were so. And that what the Judaizers were saying wasn't true. And this next verse, verse 3, should be a dead giveaway to them that what these people are saying doesn't add up with what Paul and the other apostles had delivered to them beforehand. Listen to what it says. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So Titus went up to Jerusalem to the other apostles with Paul. Titus was a Gentile. Titus would not have been circumcised, right? Because there's only the covenant people of Israel who were circumcised. 
And it says right here that neither Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. If this was a requirement which the apostles at Jerusalem were requiring of all converts to Christianity, why not was why was Titus not circumcised? This should have been a dead gift. This this is why he's telling them this. He's saying, Don't you think that if this was a requirement that he would make Titus that the Jerusalem apostles would have circumcised Titus when he was up there with me? But they didn't. So this is the nail in the coffin, as it were, for the Judaizers. And the reason this is so important is because, as we covered in the first chapter, the Judaizers were coming in and not only preaching this gospel, but seeking to undermine what Paul had preached. Faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, all this stuff that he had preached to them beforehand, and this letter they had sent down to them and saying, okay, here's the things you abstain from. If you abstain for, or if you, if you follow these four things, if you abstain from these four things, you'll do well. And there was no mention of circumcision. The Jerusalem apostles didn't require it. And now the Judaizers are. And for this reason, Paul is furious with them as evidence in his opening. He said, I am astonished that ye are turning so quickly from the gospel which I preach to you. Verse 4. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in. False brethren. This, um, this, uh, this word, uh, false brethren, uh, is translated out of the Greek. The word is pseudo-delphoi. So when we hear pseudo, you think of uh, pseudoscience or um, pseudo-spirituality. Is something that's fake, something that is not real, right? False brethren. These are not brethren who have some false ideas or some brethren who have said some bad things. These are people who are not brethren posing as brethren, right? That's what he says about them. Because the false brethren unawares brought in. These are not brothers. Uh, and we get some of these people like this in the church from time to time. Not in this church necessarily, but in the church, in evangelical circles. People that think that it's important. Um, there's a movement out there um, called Jewish, the Jewish Roots Movement. And, uh, you know, that sounds really good. Oh, let's go back to the Jewish Roots. Because, we, you know, and they... They sound really sincere because when it first, when they first tell this stuff to you, they say, "Well, Jesus and the apostles were Jewish, right? That you know they went. We can read the Gospels and we can read about um, Jesus going up to the temple, Jesus going up for these feasts and obeying these Jewish customs, right? So Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jewish." We need to do like they did because that is true Christianity. And it still exists. And these are false brothers. 
These are brothers who, or these are people who are posing in brothers as brothers who are false teachers. They do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are trying to disturb you, as Paul says in chapter 1. There are some who would trouble you. Huh? Yeah, that they're perverting the gospel. And the reason that Paul gets so tied up about that, gets so fired up about people perverting the gospel, is Romans 1.16, he says, For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. If you change that, if you add something to that, and now the gospel plus is the power of God and salvation. You have taken all of the power that was in the gospel and you have put it in something else. That is why Paul is so... Um, that is why Paul is so apt here to defend this. Even, I mean, he's angry. If you, you know, and we, we don't typically think about him being that angry because... You know, some of us, you ever get angry, you use words that maybe you shouldn't. And he didn't. He was very Christian in his conduct about this. But he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that would trouble you that would pervert the gospel of Christ. And he says, but if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And that's a, that's a strong word there. That is, let him be damned. Let him be damned to hell. Let him be anathema, apart from God, if they preach another gospel. That's how serious Paul is about the preservation of this gospel. And that's why I've titled today's message, the way I did. Guardians of the gospel. This is Paul's purpose in writing this. Listen to verse 5. Or, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Sorry. Way ahead of myself. Um, but the false brethren who were brought in unawares, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, so we've talked about this, right? We talked about this just a little bit ago, how the law is not bad. We're bad. So the bondage that they're bringing them under is the law. But what does he mean by liberty? What is the liberty we have? We, get, we have conversations a lot about Christian liberty. And I almost hate getting into those conversations with people anymore because it, it turns into, well... Um, what am I allowed to do as a Christian and still be a Christian, right? Um, it turns into, well, do I, have, do, I, do I have Christian liberty to watch R-rated movies that are filled with, um, you know, sex and gore and violence and all this stuff? Do I have that liberty in Christ? Or do I have the liberty to... Um, go to the bar and have a scotch or do I have the liberty to do this do I have the liberty to do that and it turns into this just list of 
how much can I get away with and still be a justified Christian? And that is the wrong way to think about Christian liberty. Now, I would just real quickly say that um, I don't see any explicit verses in the Bible that can that explicitly condemn any of those activities, watching R-rated, you know, watching R-rated movies, secular movies, whatever, that kind of thing. But when we turn that into that's what Christian liberty is about, we're getting so far away from the subject. We're getting so far from the intention for Christian liberty. So what is Christian liberty? We are freed. We are at liberty from the law as a means for justification. We do not have to keep the Mosaic law in order to be justified. We don't have to. We are justified by grace through faith alone. We don't have to submit to this law to be justified. That is Christian liberty. And it is a more beautiful truth than any list of do's and don'ts could ever be. We are freed from the law as justification not to disobey. We are not freed to disobey, but we are freed to obey. Because now the standard is that Christ has already fulfilled this law for us. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. He came down here and lived 33 years as a perfectly obedient son to God the Father. And he died death on the cross in my place and in your place that his righteousness might be counted to you. And so now we are free to obey God. We are free to take God's commandments and live after them and to let this gospel be our, be our motivation for living this life. That is the liberty we have. And it is, as I said, a more beautiful truth than any list of do's and don'ts could ever be. When we realize that we are freed, we are set free to obey, to run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus Christ who is the author and the finish of our, of our faith. Because we know, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free to give it our all to obey. And if we fail and if we fall, we come to the foot of the cross, we come to the throne room of God, and we plead and we intercede for his help, and we receive it, and we get back up and we get back in the race. So they might bring us back into bondage. They were wanting to bring them back into that bondage under circumcision, under abstaining from meats, you know, pork, abstaining from all these other things, and do what? Yeah, under the curse of the law, because the law is a curse. As I said, not because the law is bad, but because we are bad. Because the law is just a reflection. The, the moral law is a reflection of God's character. Now we could get into the discussion about some of these ceremonial things. Like circumcision. It was a bloody sign 
of the covenant. Well, now all the blood that had ever needed to be shed to make us right under covenant with God has been shed by Christ on the cross. So that bloody sign is now done away with. Now we have spiritual signs of cleansing. We have baptism. Which when, we, when you see someone baptized, you see the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And you see the gospel in a visible sign. And it's beautiful when you realize what's being done. When somebody's being baptized, they are dying to self. They are dying to the old man. And they are raised. And now they live unto God. They have been crucified with Christ, which Paul will talk about in Galatians chapter 2. And it's just beautiful. But we are freed from these ceremonial things. This circumcision, which was a bloody sign. And you think about all the diverse washings they had in the Old Testament. That's the other thing that sometimes people don't understand. Is there was baptism in the Old Testament, right? There was all different kinds of washing. Washing of hands, ceremonial cleansings of the head. There was all the bronze lavers of water in the temple that the priest, you know, before the priest would go in uh, in the presence of the showbread, before he would touch any of that, he would have to wash his hands in the water. And if you ever go to a Catholic service, I've been to a Catholic church for um, a uh, rosary service for a gentleman who died, a friend of mine's dad, and when you get, when you enter into their church, they'll have little lavers of water at the back. And if you're, you're going to go forward and you're going to pray and you're going to say the rosary and all this, you go before you enter into the sanctuary, they have these lavers of water and you'll rinse your hands and then you make the sign of the cross and then you kneel and you pray and then you go to your seat. Um, and so we see these kind of things, all these ceremonial things, which were done away with in Christ. And now we have the new covenant. We have two ordinances in the new covenant. And that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Not circumcision. I kind of got off on a little tangent there. But you guys get the point. We're not adding anything to faith in Christ. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. They said they didn't even give subjection to these Judaizers for an hour. They protected the gospel. They were guarding this gospel against this heresy. This is a place that we need to get back to in the modern church. We need to defend the gospel. We need to uphold the gospel. We need to make that central. And we need to understand that any addition to this gospel of grace is a perversion of the gospel. Now, we've already discussed that we are at liberty to obey. So somebody asking you to obey Christ, to obey God, 
is not adding anything to the gospel. That's part and parcel of the gospel, and that's what the gospel does to us. And if you want to hear more about that, come back tonight at 6 o'clock because that's what I'm talking about. But they did not give place by subjection for even an hour. They were so concerned with the purity and the holiness and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this beauty of justification by faith alone that becomes a major theme later on, that they said we did not even render subjection, no, not for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. The reason that Paul is so concerned about this is not because Oh, well, if they, you know, because these people are Christians, right? He's writing to a church. These people are saints. These people are Christians. He's not worried that another gospel will cause them to lose their salvation or to permanently fall away from Christ. But do you know what false gospels do to us? False gospels destroy our confidence in Christ. False gospels get us looking here. They get us looking to our flesh, and they take our eyes off of Christ. And that is why Paul and the apostles are so diligent in this epistle to the Galatians to remind people that you have been justified. We're going to see chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. He is dealing with justification by faith alone. He wants them to know that we are justified. We are saved by grace. And he's not wanting them to forget this because it will focus our eyes inwards. The, the Protestant reformers, when they talked about justification, when they talked about the righteousness that was necessary for justification, they coined this Latin term. And this term was extra nos, outside of ourselves. Our righteousness by which we're counted righteous before the Father, is outside of ourselves. It is in Christ alone. And if we were to look to circumcision or even our baptism as a work that we have done to gain the favor of God, it would put the work, it would put the focus off of Christ and unto ourselves. And Paul wants the Galatians focused to be on Christ. And that's why we defend the gospel. Here at Agape Fellowship Church, if you guys can't say anything of your pastors, if you guys can't say anything of Kevin, anything of me, I hope that you can say that we defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are that we are defendants strongly of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we Proclaim it boldly and that we uphold it and that we preach salvation by the grace of God alone. And we all should defend this. We all should not be in subjection for even a minute to these false gospels. There's a lot of things out there. We live in, a, in an age of internet and radio and there's as many preachers on the internet as there is in this, you know. You have access to people that are preaching from all over the world. 
And not all of them are preaching the gospel of Christ. There are some who will trouble you. Do not yield in subjection for them even an hour. Do not let a false gospel destroy your confidence in Christ. When you're, when you're down, when you're not sure of your justification, when you're, just, when you're not feeling righteous, when you're not feeling holy, when you're not feeling it, don't trust your feelings. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Look to that righteousness that is outside of you. Get into his word. Go to him in prayer. This is Paul's plea to these people in Galatia. Do not yield. We have not yielded to them for even an hour. And I think it's safe to say that this was also an exhortation to them. We didn't yield to it. You don't yield to it. I will never yield to a false gospel false gospel by the grace of God that destroys my confidence in his grace and that is my prayer for you guys today that you will uphold the truth that you will go forth and you will be guardians of the gospel that you will hide the word of God in your hearts that you may not sin against him that you may not be put into subjection under a false gospel no not even for an hour Pray that the gospel, the truth of this gospel of grace, would continue with you as you go forth today. Proclaim it with boldness. And remember that you are free in Christ to obey with all your heart to go forward. And he, we are justified by Christ's obedience alone. You don't have to be perfect in your obedience. There is forgiveness for that. But you are free to go to him and say, God, I failed. I need more grace. Give me more grace that I might obey you. Give me grace. Give me faith to believe your gospel. That is my prayer for you today, that you would go forth and be bold in the gospel and bold in your obedience to Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we are thankful for this truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are thankful that you see us in Christ, that this righteousness that we have lies outside of ourselves, that it does not inherit with us, but Lord, that it is his righteousness and his righteousness alone to come into us by faith. Father, I pray that this would not cause us to be lethargic in our obedience, but that it would stoke us to love and to good works, to lay down ourselves for the truth of the gospel and for the brethren. Lord, Father, I just pray that we would keep these truths central in our minds as we go forth this week. Father, I pray that you would be with each one of these as they go out. Father, help us to be salt and light as you've commanded us to be. Lord God, I pray that you bless this food as we partake of it. And I pray that you'd bless the fellowship that we're going to have. Lord, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.